If you listened to last week's podcast, you heard my big news. I have a new sponsorship for this year. Homeland Credit Union has graciously and generously decided to partner with me and my podcast this year, and I could not be more excited. We love Homeland. My mom and dad have banked there for as long as I can remember. My husband and I have accounts there, and we opened accounts for our kids. So we have three generations of family banking there, and it has been absolutely wonderful. It is pure nostalgia for me anytime I go in with my kids because I remember being a little girl going in with my parents. They have the best customer service. They are so helpful and they will answer all of your questions, anything you need. So any banking needs that you may have, give them a call 740-775-3331 and be sure to let them know that Elena sent you. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Pour It Out with Alana Beverly. I'm so excited to have you join me today. Today on the podcast, we have Melissa Stacy, and this story is one that I have been so excited to share with you. We actually recorded this back in July, like the end of July, and so I have been holding on to it and I have been ready to like bust (laughs) with excitement. It is just, oh my goodness, it's so good. It's so powerful. It is raw and real. And um, speaking of that, actually, just a heads up, uh, two things that I want to say. One is logistically, um, Melissa and her husband, Timmy, they have two little girls and they are so, so precious. And um, if you know what it's like to be a mom with two young little kids, you know, especially when um, both parents are working, it is so hard to get away and to have time to sit and record a podcast. And so the only way that we could get this to work was for me to go to her house and um, we had the conversation there with her two little girls there. And they are so, so precious and so, so busy. (laughs) And so um, you will hear them a lot. And so I just want to give you a heads up for that. You know, one of the things that I have said from the very beginning of this podcast, when I was dreaming it up, when I was first starting it and everything, I have always wanted to be clear that it's real. It's real life. You know, I do most of the interviews um, at a living room, at a dining room table, either mine or a close friend of our family's. Um, I've been using their house recently over the summer. And so it's so simple. Um, You know, I don't have a fancy studio. I don't have any of that. Um, We just do it from a a dining room table or a kitchen counter. Um, And so it's real, it's simple. And I, it's one of the things that that's my heart. You know, there's nothing professional. um, There's nothing really uh, fancy. It's just raw and real. I want people when they show up, I tell them, you know, come in your sweats. You don't have to get fancy. We're just going to sit and chat. I want you to be comfortable. I want you to be 
real and tell your story. And so that's what we did. So we did it in the midst of the chaos of two little girls running around and being in the microphone and playing. And Melissa, God bless her. I told her, um, I sent her a message and said, God bless you for being able to focus and to stay um, on, on track with your story. And she does just such a fantastic job of she, you would never know, but she was literally wrangling kids. She was um, picking up Play-Doh off the floor. She was trying to give them something to eat or drink and um, doing all of the things while still talking and while staying on track with her story. And I was sitting there just completely in awe um, of her story and the words that were coming out of her mouth and then simultaneously of just watching her multitask. And so um, there's that. I also do want to give a disclaimer and I, I want to just say um, that her story is is very real. It's very raw um, and she doesn't hold back. And so I just, um, I just want to throw that out there that it's, it, she talks a lot about, um, adult things for lack of better <laughs> words. Um, we talk about addiction. We talk about, um, what her life was like in addiction. And, um, she's very open and honest about that. And so I just kind of want to throw that out. I don't know if we have any younger listeners, um, or if you're, if you listen, um, to these episodes around your kids, but if you do, or if you let your, your kids hear them or whatever, if it's somebody that they know, um, I just want to give you a heads up that this one probably is not appropriate, um, for kids. So just wanted to throw that disclaimer out, but it is just, oh my goodness. I actually, um, listened to this back the day before I'm posting it. And, um, I just, I cried through half of it. It is a powerful story and, um, it's just, it's wonderful and beautiful and powerful. And I am so, so, so grateful, um, that she sat down and shared it. I'm so grateful that she made the time and powered through, um, like the incredible mama she is. And I'm just so grateful to finally be able to share it with all of you. So, um, grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and join us as we pour it out. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. To start off with, how about you just tell me a little bit about yourself? So my name is Melissa and I'm here with my kids, <laughs> <laughs> Jesslyn and Paisley. Um, Timothy Stacy is my husband. Uh, we have two children live here in Chillicothe and we work for another chance ministries. It's a faith-based transitional here in Chillicothe that helps men and women coming from like incarceration and just drugs and just different lifestyles and try to, you know, show them who Christ is and, and, uh, just be, just be of help, be of service to them. Um, well, you are kind of a pro at sharing your story. I feel like you do it, um, (laughs) lots of places. The Lord has just opened a lot of doors for you to be able to do it. So I don't want to do a whole lot. I think I'll let you, well, at least start out with just you, um, sharing so you can jump in and, 
Yeah, so God has definitely opened a lot of doors for me. This is only my second podcast. My first podcast with my kids. So this this is going to be a memory. <laughs> um, But he has definitely opened doors for me. And it's just uh, it's still mind-blowing for me. I, people will ask me, you know, do you, do you get nervous still? And I absolutely do because I never want to just think that I have it. I always want to be able to lean on him and just ask him, like, what are you wanting to speak to me? Because I believe when he brings opportunities to me, it's for a reason. And so whether it's just one person that's supposed to hear it or many, I just always try to be obedient. Even, you know, my flesh will be like, no, just, you don't got to commit. Just say no. And there's been times that I have said no. And it's like uh, the guilt. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. But so I'm not going to say too much into my childhood, but um, I'm originally from Alabama and my mother and my stepfather were in the union and we traveled a lot. So by the time I was in the third grade, I had been to like 22 schools. Wow. So just the get picking up and moving around and um, not being able to really make friends or like be engaged in like sports and stuff like having that stability. I, I never had really had that as a child. It was just, you know, when we got done with one place, we picked up and moved. And my stepdad was an alcoholic. He drank a lot. And so, of course, things came with that. Um, home was pretty violent. Uh, my mom, she uh, had some health issues. And she started going to the doctors and stuff. And they were prescribing her pain medication. And I guess as a child, like, I never really knew, like, how big of a problem it was to me it was just like oh my mom's going to the doctor i'm going to the doctor with my mom and we always got food after and i always got to tag along with her so for me like i didn't i didn't know it would lead to what it did and so um may 15th of 2002 i'll just jump right to it hey you have i got you uh may 15th 2002 i woke up for school and um walked into the living room and I found my mom dead and she uh at first I didn't know what had happened to her and then come to find out she shot herself um she was going through withdrawals where she had been on pain medication for so long whenever you don't have it your body and you get sick and it literally mentally can drive people to places that you would never think that they would go and so that day like pretty much kind of took me down a just started the separate path that I never thought I would go down and now, how so old were you I was 13 okay I had just turned 13 my birthday was May 3rd then Mother's Day happened and then a couple of days after Mother's Day is whenever um whenever she shot herself and so my sister had just moved out like a little bit before that and so she stayed in Ohio she found out a couple months after my mom shot herself that she was pregnant and so my real dad who i had only met a couple times in my life he he was on felony probation in louisiana he come to my mother's funeral and i didn't know him from my uncle because i hadn't you know seen him in so long uh so he came to my mother's funeral and I just need you to be good just for a minute, okay? Can we just be good just for a minute? Hmm? 
so anyways, I met my real dad and he, I, I stayed with my stepdad's daughter for a little while and that just didn't work out. And I, so I met my real dad and ended up moving in with him. And my half brother took me to the Mississippi and Louisiana state line because he was on felony probation. He couldn't even leave the state of Louisiana. And so that's where like the feelings of just like feeling unwanted, unneeded, like I had no place to belong. Like I was just a burden. There was nobody to take me. Stepdad went back off on the road working construction. My sister was in Ohio. Um, found out she was pregnant, living with her boyfriend. And then I'm, I mean, pretty much my real dad was like a stranger and I'm living with him. And so I just, I think I started experimenting with ecstasy and like marijuana and older men down there just at, at 13, like became sexually active and just seeking ways to, um, not feel anything pretty much. And, uh, once my dad got off felony probation, he moved us back up here. And so by the age of 15, I had done acquired charges, was in the juvenile, um, juvenile system, had done been to JDC, pushed my dad to a point to where it's like, I just don't even know what to do with you. And so I was in JDC school had just started. The judge was going to let me out. And my dad pretty much just told him I didn't have a home to come to because he didn't know what to do with me. And so that's when I went to foster care. And I actually went to foster care here in Chillicothe. Um, I got a really good family. And my sister, like, she was starting her own family. You know what I mean? Like, and I was. What's the age difference? Five years. Okay. So. She was like 20. Mm -hmm. and she, she had three babies back to back. So my niece, Kyla, is about to be 21 in March. And then um, Leah is about to be 19 in December and Jada she'll be turning 18 in January so like for a period they're 18 19 20 and so she just you know what I mean like she was starting her own life um share okay just share there's plenty and so here it is again it's like what do we do with Melissa you know what I mean um and so I have my foster family and like I remember uh the day that they were gonna let me go back with my dad and i cried like because when i was with my foster family like i felt almost normal like we did things like eat at the dinner table and like i wasn't bad i wasn't using drugs um how long were you with them i think i was there for maybe like six months it wasn't very long um and so and they were like really good people they were it was the their last name was Bailey. I actually, a couple years ago, ran into her actual daughter at Kroger's, um, Emily, and it was pretty cool. I always have wanted to reach back out to them, but it just has never happened. And then it's just like, you know, do they want, do they want to, you know what I mean? So you don't want to overstep that, but I guess I've just always kind of wanted to say thank you to her. And so anyways, to kind of speed it up a little bit. Once I leave there and I come back down to Asheville with my dad, I get, I start experimenting with pills and doing the same thing. Like men, men were always a problem for me. And then just trying to numb myself. And I guess this is where I kind of understood like what my mom went through because when I started using pain pills, first it was just like a weekend thing. It was just like the cool thing to do. I kind of, I'm, I was one of the ones I was popular and I fit in with everybody. It didn't matter. Um, and so, uh, I remember the day that I woke up and I was like, what, what I felt sick. And so, um, I do want to say this, like growing up. So my sister later 
I later learned through her that my mother was a Sunday school teacher when I was like, when we were really little. So I know she knew Jesus. And before my mom died, the neighborhood that we lived in, I always went to church with like the neighborhood grandma with my friend. I remember when I was, I was in a play um, and I had to, I had dressed up like a sheep and sing Messiah is coming. Like I remember stuff like that. And so I've always believed in God and I've always known that there was a God. But I think for me, like I just steered away from him because I never gained an understanding of what it was like to serve God or have a relationship. And then things like what happened to my mom and then just all the life events that happen. It's just like, well, this is what it looks like. I don't want it. You know what I mean? Like if, if God is so good. Why would he let my mom shoot herself and me find her? You right. Know? And so the resentment just built. And I never, I, I always, I have never, not one bit question, is there a God? Is he real? I always knew, but I was just like so mad. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want nothing to do with you. And, but he never yeah. left me. And I mm-hmm. believe like there are significant marks in my time, like in my story and my okay. testimony to where I see that he, seen that he sh- continued to show up for me and like my foster family being one of them, you know what I mean? Like just blessing me with a good family. And so, anyways, by the age of eighteen, like I am bouncing couch to couch. I uh, am, am trying heroin now. I've like made it up to the big leagues. Everybody else was just everybody else was doing like pain pills still, and you know it was really expensive and. That's just kind of where it happened, like the stability of, uh, or not having stability, growing up, moving around, like that's just what I did. It was, I was already in survival mode. And so when I got off of juvenile probation, which it didn't happen until like right before I turned 18, pretty much, I mean, months after I turned 18, I acquired adult charges. Um, And so I was always, I've always, until like now, I've always been on the run um, from, from the police. And so... I live my lifestyle that way, just using drugs and running from the cops and bouncing from man to man and couch to couch and just literally miserable, hating my life, hating everything about me, just mad at the world. Um, I would go periods of time without talking to my sister and just leaving her with worry and wonder, like, what's going on with me? What's happening with me? Um, She's never left my side. And so at 21... I decided, I'm, oh, I'm going to move states, and I'm going to do good, and I'm going to go all the way out here and to Nebraska, and I'm going to change my life. And so I convinced the guy that I was with to sell his car for money, and we got a bus ticket, and I moved to Nebraska. And I did quit using heroin, but I picked up methamphetamines, and that is... is if that that drug will take you to levels that you could never even imagine and i hated it i hated everything about it i remember the first time i ever did it like i was so mad at myself but the just the warfare that i was going through like i kept doing it i kept doing it i hated everything about it but i hated me more than i hated the drug or the way it made me feel so i would rather feel that way than just face myself and my life and what I'm doing. I'm already digging myself this deep hole. And um, so when I'm in Nebraska, I'm hanging out with this group of people. And I was the only one who didn't drink that night. But I had taken Xanaxes. And so those, like, will literally knock you out. 
and we were it was late and we was driving and got into a the person who was driving swerved off the road i was ejected through the front windshield and i was in a coma um i want to say for like four to six days or something like that i had woke up but they had put me back out because i was like trying to pull stuff out and the doctors literally had told my sister that i wasn't gonna make it that i wasn't gonna come out of it and again i know now like it's god who brought me out of it because i literally i wake up in lincoln nebraska i have no idea where am i i know nobody out there and if it it was not it was the girl the other girl that was in the vehicle with the two guys with me that she was there and she was leaving the hospital that day and so the the, the mindset that i was in of like i'm ripping all this stuff out they had like all these like uh, social workers and dietitian ladies and drug people and all this stuff because they seen this stuff in my system um trying to talk to me and i'm in a neck brace and i'm in this bed and like i mean i, I don't even know how i walked out of there you know i had walked out with a walker like literally i was that messed up and i still my mindset was like i just got to get out of here it was never like am i going to be okay is anything going to happen to me i never had any follow-up doctor's appointments and i had severe head injuries um and i just went back out and i was literally on a walker still using still going house to house you know um it's just insane i think about the stuff that i used to do and like how how i even survived like again i know it ain't nothing but the board and so got into that car wreck my sister was gonna get a plane ticket to come down and and see me in the hospital and um i ended up waking up and so she did it and uh i don't i think it maybe was like a couple months after i had met another group of people and at this point like i'm literally drinking myself to the point to where I black out. Paisley. Paisley. I'm drinking myself to where I literally am blacking out. Um, not remembering the night before or how I woke up with whoever was in the bed with me. And, um, I woke up one day, I had a tattoo on my hand of a brand. And, like just the lifestyle of, I knew I would wake up hurting or sore, but I couldn't tell you what happened the night before. And I, that's cause I would, and I would do it again every night. I would drink myself to the point to where I black out and I would wake up again. And, um, I couldn't tell you what happened. And, uh, I ended up starting to talk to somebody on the internet from Ohio and I robbed a guy that I was seeing down there to get me back to Ohio. And as soon as I got back to Ohio, I started back on Oxycontin. And then here's, here it goes again, just another, another never ending cycle of, you know, off to the races again, being in survival mode, dating another guy, not being around my family, um, not having any hope or belief that I could even be helped or be fixed. Um, and so when I came back, I had felony, I had acquired felony charges in Circleville and I went on the run again. And so within just a little bit of a time, a little bit of a time period, I was in Ohio, acquired, I was here long enough basically to acquire felony charges. And then I took off to West Virginia 
and I met another guy. It always starts with a guy. Um, met another guy, and when I was down there, me and him, things ended up not working out. And so I ended up, the person that he was going to, to buy the drugs off of, he had just got out of prison for doing 14 years for murder. And these are the type of people that I surrounded myself with. Again, I always believed there was a God, but I wanted nothing to do with him. And I would bow down to these men like they were my God. You know, and um, just the way that I like felt about myself. No self-worth, no self-love, no self-respect, like nothing. You know what I mean? I have a sister that would literally do anything for me. And it was never good enough. And I think, you know, for people that have family, family members struggling with addiction, like it's not their fault. It's not that they're not enough. It's just a spiritual warfare that it's happening when with the drugs, like it's literally demonic, like, and there's such a stronghold and it takes nothing but Jesus and the willingness of someone to quit. And I think about that all the time. Like my sister's like every, she owned her own home. She was a great mom, a great wife. She literally ran a company, worked herself from the ground up. And it's like, she's always like, I can fix everything else in my life. But why can't I fix you? You know, I was like the one thing, but she never stopped trying. And so, um, I started the guy in West Virginia. He just got out of prison from doing 14 years for murder. And these were the type of people I surrounded myself with. Like now today, I'm like, you know, I just can't fathom. It just really like, <laughs> we was, uh, driving home last night from a concert. And I told my friends, I'm like, I think about stuff that I used to do. And like, now I get anxiety driving after dark you know what I mean <laughs> like I used to walk really bad streets in the dark and have no fear whatsoever and now like and so anyways I was uh running drugs for him and um can you keep your play-doh in here please I was running drugs for him back and forth from Ohio to West Virginia and this was the way that I, like, viewed myself. Uh, I was actually using as well. He did not know that. You see, with the drugs and the, like, the drug world, like, pills are a little bit classier than actually, like, doing dope or heroin. And stuff. He was okay with me doing pills, but he had no idea. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Hey. Okay, you can have a seat. Um, But he had no idea that I was stealing from him the whole time, and so he ended up finding out, and I... I was honest with him and told him I was thinking that my loyalty would go somewhere when the next morning I asked him for a lighter and instead of getting a lighter I get a fist to the face and like he beat me black and blue and I just remember I'll never forget like just getting up and apologizing to him like I literally got blood dripping from my face you couldn't tell whether I was black white Puerto Rican and that was just the way that I viewed myself like I was disloyal to him and I deserve what he did to me. And he used to say things to me like, uh, thank you for turning my house into a home. And those things like made me feel like somebody, like made me feel important or like I was doing something. And I would literally feed off of it. And so I had the felony warrants and um, I come to Ohio to pick up some stuff. And on my way back, we get pulled over because we had a flat tire. 
and I go to jail for my felony warrants. First I come to Ross County and then I go to Pickaway County. And of course I call my sister every time I go to jail, I call my sister like, I'm going to do better this time. I'm going to do better this time. And I would always mean it. Like I can honestly say now, like thinking back, thinking back, like every time I would tell her, like I really wanted to do better. Like I really meant it. And so they offered me star which was a behavioral modification program. And I didn't feel like I had a behavior problem. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm not going to star. And it's so funny because I'm a substance abuse counselor today. And back then I'm like, I don't care what degree they got on their wall. One, I'm not incriminating myself. Two, you don't know me from nowhere. And so how are you going to try to tell me how to fix my life or like what to do? You have, you know, nothing about me. And then if you never lived it, I definitely don't want to hear from you, you know, and just, uh, fear of judgment of everything of my mom you know for 14 years i told people my mother was murdered i never tell nobody she was going to pull the trigger because i judged her more than anybody else and the thought of like everybody's gonna think that my mom didn't love me because she left her daughter in the back room and she did what she did you know what i mean and so i would just cover it up and like just my whole life like i was just finding ways to escape with drugs men lies and like to the point to where when I got clean and I faced reality and I got honest with myself, like I had to continue to remind myself that my mother, she took a lie because I had believed it for so long. Me and my sister couldn't even talk about it because I was in such denial of just like everything. I mean, maybe I didn't want to believe that my mom didn't love me enough to not do that within the, you know, in the back room or whatever. And so anyways, um, they offered the max sentence they could offer me was 18 months. And so I ended up doing 12 months in Marysville. Um, and what I knew about prison was what I seen on TV. So I went in there with a bad attitude and like, I was really scared. If I'm honest, I was scared. Like I don't want anybody taking advantage of me or trying to do anything to me. And so I went in there like, you know, I'm, I don't care what happens, but I'm not backing down. And so I got put in the hole my fifth day there, and honestly, for me, I feel like that was a God thing because um, although people are locked up, there's still wise people in there. You know, they made mistakes, and um, when you're in the hole, you're not allowed to be in a cell by yourself. You always you have a partner, like a bunkie or whatever, and so I had some lifers that were bunkies, and they just painted it plain for me and simple, like you can do your time and get out, or you can do your time and hope you get out, and you take your pick. And although that doesn't sound like very much different, it made, it spoke to me and it was very different for me. And so when I got out of the hole and I went back to admissions and then I popped out in GP, which is general population, um, I got a part of a leadership program. I started a step team and like, I actually tried to do something with my time and I stayed Mama. out, I stayed out the mess. I stayed off the mess. And I remember like, I was scared to get out. Like, I don't recommend prison to people. I don't recommend prison, but like my life, the way that it was like prison at that time was like the only normalcy that I had of like, you know, I had a relationship with my sister. I had, um, I had a relationship with my sister. I, I, um, was engaging with my nieces like I was doing good I was clean I wasn't getting in trouble although I was in prison um and so uh like I didn't want to get out this plate was about to be everywhere <laughs> I didn't want to get out and so when my mom died 
they had a settlement. Um, they sued the doctors for a wrongful death. So basically, like, blaming the doctors, you know, for her addiction and all the medications they were prescribing her and not telling her to get help. And and so, um, like, that made it any better. You know, we got paid basically for her killing herself is how I've seen it for a long time. And so the same probate judge was also the same juvenile judge. And so he knew me and he knew, like, you know, I, my troubles. And so he set the age for me to get it to 25. And, um, I got out of prison May 9th. I turned, I turned 25 May 3rd. I got out of prison May 9th and I had made this plan with my sister that I was going to put all the money in her name and she was going to help me, you know, try to do something with it and do right with my life. And so I got out, I did good for about six to eight months. I did everything I said I was going to do. And then I got bored and I wanted to be seen. I was doing good. I had a job and. I started seeing this guy and he sold marijuana and, you know, although it's like not the hard drugs, it was just, just enough to get me back started. And it started out like somebody needed marijuana one time. I got it for him. Then next thing you know, I'm keeping it on me. Then next thing you know, I, uh, someone didn't have cash. Instead they had pills. I had those pills and then I had a bad day, took those pills and it was a wrap. Like, it's just literally, it was just that easy. And within, oh my gosh, within like two months, um, my car was stolen. I got a rental car three weeks after I had it. It was stolen and shot up. Um, and now I'm using bath salts, methamphetamines, crack cocaine, heroin, pills, you name it. If I could inject it, I was doing it. And I literally would torment my sister to give me money out of my account, which it just like at that time, just more hell I was putting her through. Um, again, nothing but God, I didn't die because of the amount of money that I was spending on drugs every day. And so I literally lost everything that fast and all the things that I said I would never do, I ended up doing. And so within a year, um, I was seeing this guy and I was sick and I had a friend that walked the streets and she, uh, she came to me one day and she said, Hey, I got this double date. You know, this is how much money you'll make. Da, 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 da. And like, I was desperate. I was so sick. And my boyfriend at the time was like, you know, if I was getting money for it, it wasn't cheating. And so that's technically a form of trafficking. You know, he was okay. And he was, he was um, reaping benefits from me doing what I was doing. And so that was the first night I ever sold my body for drugs. And that became my number one go-to. And I was living on the south side of Columbus. And I did, I, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't really good at it. Um, I had never walked the streets before. I did more of like robberies and stealing and this being around whatever man I was around and doing, you know, I, I was pretty much down for whatever I was one of them. I, I again, I, I just bowed down to the type of men that I was around. And so whether I was a drug mule, a getaway driver, uh, actually a part of it, I mean, I did whatever, but I always, you know, I always thought I was like something better because I wasn't that girl walking on the streets. And there was times that I would, uh, promote women to sell herself and I would make money off of it. So technically you could say at one point I traffic women or I compelled women or, you know, and, and for a while, like when you're in the lifestyle, like you don't really think that. But once I got educated after getting out of the lifestyle, like I had to come to terms 
with some things and I had to ask for forgiveness for some things and I had to forgive myself for some things. A lot of bad things happened to me, but I also did a lot of bad things and made a lot of bad decisions that led to that point. I do not blame myself for for stuff that happened to me, but I also take ownership for the things that I did. Um, because, you know, I think a lot of times I always want to make that point because I, for one, I don't want nobody self-pity of the stuff that happened to me. You know, I, uh, I'm so grateful to be able to use my testimony to, to just one, to glorify his name and to be a witness and two, to hopefully just show somebody else, like, you know, it's like the bigger the mess, the bigger the message and God, it don't matter. I've done some really bad things, and I know in my heart he still loves me just the same as he loves the one that's been in church their whole life. Mm -hmm. And if I got to be that person, you know, to make sure, you know, just to be able to be used. So anyways, I did that, and that became my number one go-to, and I did dates day in and day out. And I remember, like, my second night walking the streets, like, I got got into the wrong car with a cop. I did not, I, like, I just wasn't good at it, and I had no idea that so, of course, I was a runner, I always ran from the police, and they let me go, and that was, like, you know, I don't, I'm not gonna go to jail for this, so then I just kept doing it, so. I lived in abandoned houses. I washed up in gas station bathrooms. I bowed down to whatever dope boy had the best drugs. Um, And that was my lifestyle. Rape became normal. It was just like you win something. To even say the word rape, it has no no effect to me anymore. It happened so much. It was just a part of the lifestyle. You win some, you lose some. But if you are still breathing, you get in another car. And I remember there would be times that I can remember times today that it happened. Hey, can I need you to be quiet, okay? I remember times that it happened, and I would get out of the car, and I would be crying, but I wasn't crying because of what just happened to me. I was crying because I didn't make no money. And, like, that was literally the mindset and just the lifestyle and just the... The insaneness mm-hmm. of of everything, and, and so I was walking down the street one day. I had been up for like nine days. Body was literally shutting down, zombified, uh, not eating. I mean, my I'm literally just like running into stuff because my body is just like shutting down. And these girls I knew was driving down the street, and um, they had told me about a program called Catch Court. And I had, I didn't have no interest. And so I was like, we got this guy you can meet. And so that was the day that I met the man who trafficked me. He gave me this like glamorous, you know, I'm going to feed you. I'll bring you your drugs. Um, Took me to this house up in the attic. It was like a woman's dream. And like, I had a quota I had to meet three times a day. If I met the quota, I could have Sundays off. If I didn't meet the quota, then I couldn't have Sundays off. I did dates day in and day out, in calls and out calls. And this is where, like, my judgment towards people and just the fact that I didn't trust people, like, happened even more. Everybody wants to put a signal on what a person looks like that's in this lifestyle. And let me tell you, whenever I was being trafficked and I was doing dates, like, doctors, probation officers, cops, nurses and so for me 
when I got clean, it was like I was looking at everybody like, mm -hmm. what do you, how do you really live? You know, and so everybody wants to place a stigma on like the person on the the street that's holding the sign, or the one that maybe ain't got the name brand clothes on or whatever. And I'm here to tell you, like, none of that matters. I don't care how much money they got, what their degree is. They could be in the church. It don't matter. Like literally, and, and my vision just got really blurred. And, and I just, you know, I just didn't, I didn't want to be around people. And, and um, I didn't trust anybody, nobody. And so anyways, everything that is new eventually becomes old. So I lived into an, I lived in an apartment. I did all that. I was like, you know, hot girl, whatever. And then he moved me to another apartment or to another house with more women. And like here it was kind of like, you know, I just learned to lay down because it hurt less pretty much when there was men there that watched us. He didn't really come and go as you pleased. I wouldn't say that there wasn't ways for me to escape because there was, but I think the mental and like the mental like prison that I felt like I was in just, you know, you see things happen, you know what to expect. You see what happens to other people. And so it was just like the fear of leaving and what would happen to whereas staying, like I knew what to expect, but it just became like, I just wanted to die so bad. Like, I was so... I wasn't even getting numb anymore from the drugs. Like, I, it was literally, like, I was sober and all this was happening. Um, and I just was like, I just was like, dang, like, I can't even die right. Like, so many times I would try to do enough drugs to just kill myself. And I'm like, I am that much of a failure. Like, I can't even die. You know what I mean? Like, what? It doesn't get any worse than that, like. I'm even failing at that. And so um, I ended up running from the house and like within weeks I get arrested. So when I get, once I get arrested, I go, I go to treatment this time because I'm just like, I'm going to get out and go do what? Like I literally have nothing and I'm just exhausted. And so that was where like, I can't die. So I guess I have to choose to live. And I went to treatment and I did everything they said, except for not get into a relationship. And so I got into a relationship had 15 months clean. That turned out really bad. I wasn't still all the way in with God. I was still really mad at him. We would go to New Beginnings on Wednesday and I would praise and whatever else. And then I would go home and bump trap music. So I was like, not all the way in. It was almost like maybe it was for show. Like maybe I was just trying to convince myself. I'm not really sure. Did you just take her phone? You cannot do that. Here, you can have mommy. And so... After meeting the guy, and I slowly started to lose connection with everyone. I want to take just a bit and tell you about my amazing, amazing partners. First up, Roast Coffee. They have the best coffee that you will ever taste for sure here in Chillicothe, Ohio, but maybe the best coffee that you'll ever taste in your whole life. No joke. It's the best. If you are looking for just a strong black coffee, I highly recommend the Americano. If you are looking for something sweet, you cannot go wrong with the Cubano, hot or iced. And if you are a tea drinker, I cannot recommend the London Fog enough. It is incredible. 
incredibly delicious, especially on these cool days. It's kind of like a hug in a cup. They also have some really, really delicious fall drinks that are absolutely delicious. They have a homemade pumpkin spice latte. Listen, Starbucks has nothing on theirs. It is homemade pumpkin syrup and it is absolutely fantastic. They also have a fireside latte that is probably my favorite. I love it. They also have um, some seasonal foods. I had the peach toast the other day. It is delicious. I think they're getting ready to take that off the menu. So this might be your last week to try it out. So if you haven't had it yet, go get it. Also, I've got Sweet William Blossom Boutique. They are in the peak of homecoming season. And so they are staying busy and they are absolutely amazing at everything they do. I have seen these corsages and boutonnieres that they put out. And if you are still in need of one, contact them. It doesn't get any better than them. Also, they have my favorite chocolate covered strawberries. They've got gourmet apples, all kinds of goodies. Go check them out. And last but not least, Maggie and Me Candle Company. Oh my goodness, they have the best candles ever. Go check them out on their, I would recommend you go to their Facebook page and check out. Uh, They have some collaborations with businesses downtown and they are amazing. So go check them out and see what scents they have at which store and then go get them. Oh my goodness, their fall scents are my absolute favorite. And so this is my favorite time of year to get candles from them. Go check them out. And whatever you do, whether it's Roast Coffee or Sweet William or Maggie and Me Candle Company, uh, when you do go check them out, be sure to let them know that Alina sent you. Now back to the episode. So I relapsed and then I ended up getting arrested in the Southside Suite um, that they did. I didn't even know that I had warrants. And so when I went back to jail, mind you... They have a saying called like a 911 prayer, like, God, if you get me through this, I'll never do it again. Well, I never did those. I never did those when I was in the streets. I never did those when bad things happened. I never did them when I went to jail. Um, none of that. I just, I'm, like I said, I didn't just really didn't just have an interest of like, I didn't want nothing to do with anything. But this time when I went to jail, I, uh, I don't know what, I don't know. I mean, God, it had to be because like, I wasn't in the mix. I wasn't getting in fights. Um, I wasn't about the same stuff that I was about all the other times that I went to jail. And like I had gotten a recovery Bible from someone and I was actually reading it. And I honestly like, I didn't really know what I was reading, but I just kept reading it every day. I just made a point to read it. And then I would like make a point to try to put in kites to go to church and stuff like that. And and um, they, they uh, catch court came and asked me if I wanted to get back into catch court. And I said, yes. So I came back to treatment down here. And this time, like, I, it was just different for me. I was still really scared. And I wish I could tell you, like, my bottom was being trafficked and, like, all the bad stuff that happened. But it just wasn't, like, when I went to treatment this time, um, my sister had always been there for me. She, she would send me clothes, send me money, answer the phone, all of that. And this time she was like, uh, she wouldn't answer the phone. 
It's not that she didn't want nothing to do with me. I drove her to a point to where she had to protect herself. Like she literally just couldn't put herself through it anymore. My nieces knew where I was at and they had no interest. And so um, while I was in still in the streets, my dad had passed away. And my sister went through that whole process by herself without me. She had to do everything. And this was a year before I had got clean that it happened. And so I wasn't there for her for that. Missed going to like the celebration of life with my dad. All of that. And um, so the people from Catch Court was my only contact with my sister. And they had just told her like, and my sister had told her like, it's going to be a while before I answer her phone call this time. Her nieces know where, where she's at, but they have no interest. And I'll never forget that. And I remember sitting on the steps at the Johnson house. And that was when I made up my mind that I was done. Because I had never been at risk to lose what family I had left. Because all my family's dead. Except for my sister, my nieces, my brother-in-law, my stepdad that lives in Tennessee, and then my aunt that lives in Alabama. Outside of that, like, I don't have any family. Everybody's gone. And so, I mean, I have some cousins, but I've never really been around them. Um... And so that was, that was my bottom knowing like I had no kids. I had no husband. I had no, I had built nothing. I just had a whole bunch of charges and a big mess to clean up and I had a problem and now I don't have a family. And so when I chose not to run, I didn't have nothing to lose. Like I, you know what I mean? Like when I chose not to run, I chose to stay. That's when I, that was it for me. And so May 15th of 2002, um, is my sobriety date. So I have a, like, I have a little over five years of being free. And, um, it's also the same day that my mom killed herself. So God is like, mm -hmm. you know, he done something special with that for me because I believe I am the miracle that she didn't get. And so I don't just get clean for me, but I stay clean for her as well. Um, I had made a promise to my dad because he was like, me and my, my sister was just mad at me and she had every right to be because I was just bad. Like I was like, you know, I put them through hell. And, and so my dad told me like, I need you to get it together. Like you and your, I'm not always going to be here to fill in the gap. Like you and your sister are going to need each other. And so I just always believe like I am the miracle my mom didn't get. And every day I'm just trying to keep my promise to him. And so I made my mind up that day and I haven't stopped since. Um, I met this girl in treatment. She grew up in church. So when I would read the Bible, I'm just like, I can't pronounce half these words. I don't know what none of it means. And this lady had told me, like, the word does not go away void. And so um, I didn't know what I was reading or what I was getting. So I just kept reading it. And uh, on my passes, I would walk to the church a block down the road. Just I just, like, had this hunger. And so, like, while other girls were, like, going to the park to meet men, which they ended up getting our walking passes took, like, I was trying to find ways to get to church. And so I got a spiritual mentor. I started going to church in Portsmouth. And then I met um, Pastor Gray at treatment. And, like, I didn't know, like, the whole planting and watering and God gave the increase. And so, to be honest, I thought Pastor Gray was crazy. I'm like, every time I was seeing him, I would try to dodge him. I'm like, I know he's going to try to pray for me. I know he's going to try to pray for me. Like, I know he's going to try to pray for me. And he was just drawn to me and he just spoke so much life into me. And he just like, 
And at the time, like there was no women's program. Like my husband had not even went through his program yet. Like none of that. And so it's just crazy. Like God definitely, you know, he goes way before you. And I just, just everything was getting set up. Well, when I was in treatment, the man who trafficked me, um, all those times I was high and thought somebody was watching me. They really was. It was the, uh, it was the cops <laughs> and he was facing prison time for multiple charges. It was like 42 counts or something like that. And, um, so it was literally like my first year in prison. I was still like in prison in my mind because I had this going on and I didn't trust anybody to talk about it. And so, uh, he ended up getting sentenced to 14 years or yeah, 13 or 14 years. And they ended up giving him a plea deal so that none of us will have to testify because I refused. I wouldn't have anyways. Um, I didn't want a part of it. I just wanted to, to live my life and be able to move on. And so I never talked about being trafficked in group. I never talked about the case in group. I never, because I didn't trust people. And so the only person I would talk to it about was my mental health counselor, our recovery counsel. And I would talk to her about it. And then I had a human trafficking advocate, Jamel. She works for the, uh, now she works for Homeland Security, but at the time she worked for the Human Trafficking Task Force. And so um, I would talk to her about it. And so I went through that period. And like after everything got settled, God just started opening these doors. And you would have never told me I was going to be speaking for one. <laughs> um, I remember the first time I spoke was for Adina Hospital. And they did this event. It had like, I don't know, maybe like 40 nurses and doctors. And um, I shared my story. And that's kind of where like the door opened. And so I started sharing all over Ohio and I spoke with like the nurses symposium training and educating nurses and doctors on human trafficking and addiction. And I've done stuff with the Columbus, Ohio police Academy doing different trainings and being on panels. And I did stuff with the state highway patrol. I did a two day training with them. I actually educated and trained the same cops that arrested me, which was kind of cool. Like, God is like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, you ain't, he will equip you to walk in any room. Yeah. It don't matter. And um, did some stuff with, like, colleges and being on panels. And then I did a documentary with BBC out of London, British Broadcasting Company. And they came down here and they did a documentary on me and two other women. Which that was a different experience. Um like I told you before we started, I could speak to 10,000 people, but being filmed is just weird. Mm -hmm. um, but I just, I believe that if I can help one person with my story, then I've done my job. It's not about how many, if I can just one more. And so that was my motivation through it all. It was never about me. Um, I have to literally fight myself through, not so much now, but especially in the beginning when I was still healing. Mm -hmm from everything and sharing this, the, the, all the, the insecurities and different stuff that I would deal with the battles, just like every time I would commit to something, like they're going to judge you. You're not going to make a difference. You're just going to be another prostitute that should have been found behind the dumpster. Like, and all this stuff, like I would literally have to fight through those. And mind you, I'm still working full time and sober living. I'm still trying to maintain my recovery. I'm trying to complete outpatient, which I did everything. I did everything they asked me to do. I got a spiritual mentor, Rochelle Gray, and she is, uh, whew. I always felt like I wasn't deserving of walking in a church because I didn't look like everybody else covered in tattoos. I'm loud. I'm extra, but I love Jesus and I might not know the whole Bible back to back, um, front to back, 
but my heart was open and I knew enough to get me to that next step. And, and she is who taught me how, um, how to just be me and feel worthy of having a relationship with God and serving God. And so I ended up making Zion my home church. I worked at Moe's for two years and then got my GD, got my CDCA. I met Timmy, which for 18 months, I didn't engage with any men. Wasn't sexually active, wasn't nothing because I literally had to treat men like a drug for me. Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't, until I learned to love myself by myself, I just, I had to refuse. And I would literally make myself unapproachable to where, you know, they wouldn't want to come up to me. And so I, Timmy asked me out and I told him no the first time. And, um, told him no. And then I ended up going out on a date with him and God just literally just blew our life up. Um, had two babies. We got married. We lost our first baby. Then we had two babies after that. Got married. Bought a house. Um, buying vehicles. You know, we have three vehicles now. Literally just coming from nothing. Um, working in ministry together. Our life is committed to serving others. Um, other people like us. He speaks all over as well. I think you and him were in school ministry mm-hmm. together. You know, he loves the word. He loves Jesus. He... You know, uh, God couldn't have picked a better man for me. Um, he always said whenever whenever he heard me speak, I'm like, this dude's nuts. He got to be on medication. Like, I just told you my whole story, and you still want to go out on a date with me. Like, what meds are you on? Like, what's the trick? You know what I'm saying? Like, this is just not. And he said, all I could think about is what we can do in ministry together, and that's going to be my life. And he's still that. Mm-hmm. That's gonna be, you know what I mean? Like, if he says something, it happens. And you know, Pastor did try to pay Cupid. He introduced us. And I'm like, Pastor, you know, I'm still, I'm getting ready to speak to like 200 people, like me, addicts and stuff. And I'm like, I ain't got time to think about that. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I dedicate my life to being a wife today and and a mother. And I have my sister is my best friend. Um, I have a great mother-in-law. God bless me with like more family. And so everything that people may think like, oh, she don't have this. Like I do. I have everything and then more. I might not have it and it might not look the way that it does for everybody else. But God made sure that he fixed the missing pieces for me. And so I don't like anything. Um, He's just so good. And I'm by far not perfect. You know, Um, I still make mistakes. I still have days of like feeling undeserving and unworthy and like I'm not enough and I didn't do this good enough and I gotta go harder but just holding on to him and just reminding myself of like who he thinks I am and not giving the worldly views the power um I am so sorry hey hey that is not your stuff um and just keeping me going and just trying to be that example for them so I love it. I love that you're, I love when, I mean, I've loved all of it, but one of the things when you said that you got to like teach some of the same police officers that had arrested you, like, I just think that that's, that's redemption. You know, that's the, that's the picture right there of, I mean, your whole life is a picture of redemption, but like that right there is just, it's amazing how he, it's those smaller details that you're able to see like god you redeemed this 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 and even that 
Yeah. And I just, I, I love that. I remember walking in and I, I told Timmy, because Timmy went with me, and I'm like, I got my cigarette. Because uh, they were like suited and booted, hats, guns, all that. And I started out like, y'all don't intimidate me no more. <laughs> You know, I'm not on the run. I don't have no warrants. I'm here because y'all need me. You know, I came through the front door, not the back door. I'm not cuffed. You know, just all those little things. It was different. Yeah. It was a different experience. Yeah. I was like, we gotta go outside and smoke yeah. cigarettes. Timmy, quit. Because I was like, woo. Which I don't smoke anymore, neither. I quit that, too. I haven't smoked for three years. Worst thing is Coca-Cola. Yeah. Gets me. So... You've been clean for five years, you said? May 15th was five years, so five years and some change. That's awesome. So, for the people who are listening, who are like you in recovery, who are past that, they've put that behind, they're serving Jesus, but they still have hard days. What would you tell them? Like, what gets you through those hard days? I mean, number one, God, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I've done gotten through the hardest days. I shouldn't be alive. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just try to remember that. And I just try to place no limits. You know? If we have limits, it's because we place them on ourselves because we serve a limitless God. And I just try to remind myself that every day. And I also try to remind myself, like, all people have hard days. Yeah. And so you got to take the labels off of you of just because you know, you come through this and, you know, people place this stigma or this judgment. All people have hard days. I don't care if they're rich, if they're poor, if they have like, if they own their own business, if they don't, if it looks like they have this perfect life on the outside. Everybody struggles and have hard days. You know, you just have to choose your heart and you just have to choose what you do with it. And you have to remember you have a choice now. Yeah. You know, um, and I lean on him. I just try to think about, like, what is it? What is this teaching me? And it don't always be that simple in the beginning. I'm stubborn. My husband will tell you. Like, I like to hold on to things. And I like to, you know, be a, be a brat, if better words, <laughs> for a few days. And, you know, but I remember, eventually, I remember in prayer, yeah. just trying to pray, pray and praise my way through it. It's all I can do. And then when I can't do it myself, I surround myself with people that will help me. You know, I have a life coach and she is absolutely amazing. And God will literally, he will give you everything that you need. You just have to be open to what it is that he knows that you need and what it is, not what it is that you think that you need. Yeah. Because if you're looking for what you think that you need, then you may miss it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't always come wrapped up in a pretty bow. Yeah. Well, the last question I always ask is right now where you are, like, what do you feel like the Lord's speaking to you right now? Right now for me, for me personally, it's just to hold on, um, to seek, to seek him, you know, uh, if I am transparent, I'm definitely not my husband. I'm not a walking, talking Bible. And. I literally have to discipline myself. I love the word, but to actually open it and read it. And so I think lately for me, what he's speaking to me is just to spend more time with him. Yeah. Spend more time. How, whatever that is, you know, whether it's 
in my car, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in my Bible, whether it's in praise, is just to spend more time with him and to continue to just, no matter what, serve him, glorify him, and be that example, you know, of what it, what, what it is yeah. to, to serve God. Now, I want, before we end, I want, I'm going to ask you at the very end to pray. Okay. Um, but before that, I want to ask, so on the flip side, for people who have loved ones who are still in addiction, um, what would you say to them to encourage them? If there is still air in their lungs, there is still a chance. Don't give up hope, but don't enable them. You know, it's not over. My sister never thought I would, you know, I'm uh, Easter we had an Easter egg hunt in my backyard for my kids, and she said, I cannot believe this is your life. Like, I just can't believe it. There was a time in it that she did not think that I would make it, you know. Um, and so if there is still air in their lungs, there is still a chance. And if you don't know what else to do, pray. Keep praying, keep praying, and keep believing. You know, the faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. And so it is other people's prayers that, you know, pull me out. I know somebody was praying for me. I don't know who, but I believe that. I believe it's nothing but God. And so if they are still breathing, there's still a chance. It's not yeah. over. That's good. That's good. Well, will you, I want you to pray specifically for the people who, who have loved ones who are still in addiction, who are tired and weary and just kind of where your sister was of like, I'm, I've done everything and I don't know what to do. Um, but being someone on the other side of it, who's like, you know, I, mm -hmm. this is what he did. I want you to pray for them to pray that hope over them. Okay. okay. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I just come to you, right? God, I just, I'll just come to you in the need and in the gap of those who have a loved one struggling with addiction, God, the ones that are just losing losing hope and getting tired and getting exhausted and getting weary. And God, I pray right now that they just hold on, God. I pray right now that they just know that if there is still air in their lungs and they, they are still living, that there is still a chance that it is not over, God. And I pray that they just continue to just trust in you, God, that you will make a way. And, and I pray for the loved ones in addiction as, you know, that they're just reminded that it's not their fault. It's not nothing that they have done or that they that they haven't done. It is literally a spiritual warfare that they are fighting, that they are going through, that only you can bring them out of. And God, I pray right now that you just give them a peace of mind, that they just hold on to you and that they just seek you to fill in the gap and to help them and, and, and the need, God. And I pray for everyone right now that is struggling with addiction, as I know personally, just what it's like and, and for someone to go through that and to literally just get to the to just nothing, nothing and just having no hope and believing that that it can't happen. And God, I pray that I am an example and everyone that I am surrounded with that is like me, my husband, uh, friends that I work with, the people that I help every day, that they are a constant reminder that you can and will make a way. Mm -hmm. That you can and will pull mm -hmm. just one more person out of it. And so I pray that those that they walk and be a living example of what you can do, God, as, as my life is. And I thank you for continuing to use me and, and to be a voice for those that don't have a voice and, and to just hopefully speak some encouragement 
to someone, God. And so I pray right now in the name of Jesus, God, that you touch mm -hmm. every each and every single person that has experienced this in one way or another, God. And I pray that you touch those that have lost someone to addiction and just remind them that you are still there. Although they probably think, why? Why didn't my son make it? Why didn't my daughter make it? Why didn't my family member make it, God? I pray that you just give them some type of peace and understanding and just comfort. Comfort them, God. Wrap your arms around them, God. As you only know what the battles that they are facing, God. And I, I just pray that right, right now. In the name of Jesus, we just ask all of this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. So, so much. Well, was I right? <laughs> um, oh my goodness. I just, I still cannot get over this episode and just the, the blessing that Melissa is and the blessing that her story is. My heart is just completely overwhelmed. As I said, as I'm recording this right now, um, it's after listening back to it because we recorded it back in July and I just wanted to re-listen to it. And I am completely blown away again. I remember that day when I recorded with her and I remember just sitting there completely overwhelmed. And I remember leaving her house and calling a friend and saying, oh my goodness, I just wish that I could share this with the whole entire world <laughs> because it is just a story that is full of so much hope and so much redemption. And all of us, all of us, we have areas of our life that we are believing the Lord for a miracle and we are believing him to come through. And whether it's an area of believing for someone who is walking the path of addiction or a lost loved one. Um, a lot of us have those people in our life. A lot of us have those stories of people that we're believing for and praying for. I pray that this encourages you. I pray that if it's not, if it's something with finances or health or something else, that just the work that the Lord did in her life and has done and is doing in her life, I just pray that that stirs your faith to believe that he is faithful in your situation and what you are believing for also. Um, there are just a few things I want to say really quick at the end of this um, because they were just little golden nuggets. <laughs> and I hope that you grab them and I hope that you pick them up. Um, but I just want to touch on them. One of the things was, you know, Melissa had, she had a hard life. You know, there are a lot of things that she walked through that, you know, things that, that happened to her and things that happened as a result of situations that she put herself in. Um, but what I found was so interesting was that regardless of all of it, nothing made her hit rock bottom until her sister and her nieces walked away. And she said, you know, I chose to stop running. She said, I chose not to run. I chose to stay because I figured I had nothing to lose. I didn't have anything. I didn't have anyone. And that was so powerful because once she got to that place where she was like, I have nothing to lose. I'm just going to try to, to not run. I'm just going to stay put. And that is when the Lord just came in and he did a work. Um, 
I love where she talked about Pastor Gray and how when she met him, how it was way before they even had a women's program. It was way before her husband went through his program. And um, she said, you know, he, the Lord, um, he, he goes way before us. And so just know that, be reminded of that. He, we serve a God who goes before us. He prepares the way, he prepares the path. He's preparing the way for your loved ones. He's preparing the path for your loved ones to walk. The ones that you're believing for, the ones that you're praying for, he has gone before them. He's going before them and he is preparing the way. He is so faithful. Um, I love, and I told her this in the podcast, but just to say it again, I love that when she got to do these trainings for Adina and for law enforcement and things, she says um, that she got to do trainings for the police officers who had arrested her. And I love that. That is the beauty and the redemption and just the, I'm going to turn your whole life around and then I'm just going to put some sprinkles on top of the cake and be like, yep, here's just a little extra gift. And she says, he will equip you to walk in any room. And then she jokes and says, you know, I'm, you don't intimidate me. Like I, I am fully equipped for this. And, um, I came in the front door and not the back. I'm not cuffed. I just love that. Like, I love, he will redeem you and he will let you be in front of people, um, who condemned you or who thought, who saw the worst sides of you. I know that's been true in my story. I have people who, you know, they knew me before I knew Jesus and who they know the things that I walked through. They know the mistakes I made. They were with me in it. And now we get to serve Jesus together. And now we get to, I had an opportunity to leave some, lead some of them in Bible study um, when I had a women's Bible study. And so it's just, the Lord is so good to do that, to give us a new name, to give us new character, to redeem our past. Um, he's just so good. And, um, and then I'm sorry, I am making, I don't mean to make this longer, but I just, oh oh my goodness. Um, the, the parts where she said, we place limit. If we, we place limits on ourselves. we, place limit. When we feel like we're limited, it's because we've placed limits on ourselves. because we serve a limitless God. So just know that. And also, um, just know that regardless what the situation is, she talks specifically about addicts. Um, but I'm going to say for anybody that you are believing for, for your lost loved ones, for a sickness for somebody who's fighting their way through cancer or for someone who's fighting their way through some other health issue. Um, if there is still breath in their lung, if there is still air in their lungs, there is still hope. So keep praying and keep believing. And so I just, oh my goodness gracious, it's so full of hope. It's so just, it's got my faith all stirred up all over again. And I needed that today. And I hope that it blesses you and encourages you and just points you closer to Jesus. So I'm going to stop rambling. Um, but I hope that you enjoyed this episode and I hope that you have a fantastic week and I will join you back next week for another episode.